Good morning. Uh, before we get started here, uh, we are going to be taking communion at the end of the sermon. And we had some elements, and if you did not get a chance to get one of the elements and you're planning to partake communion with us, we've got some men here. Uh, just go ahead and shoot up your hand. They'll be happy to get you uh, those elements for you. Uh, I also wanted to give you an update from the last time I preached. Uh, I preached about a month ago here, and I started off with a story uh, about how when I was in kindergarten, um, I had some um, of my friends or who I thought were friends, neglect me because I only had stencil dinosaurs and I didn't have any real dinosaurs. Well, I've got some great news. Um, I received a dinosaur from the Shooty family. Um, it even, mouth even moves. And then not too long after that, I got a package in the mail from my mother uh, with some more dinosaurs. So as you can see, I am completely ready for my 30-year kindergarten graduation reunion, because that's a thing, right? I'm going to bring the dinosaurs, and we're going we're gonna to make up for lost time. It's going to be great. Um, as mentioned in, in that little video here, we're starting a new series called Heartbeat, and, and we're looking at the book of Psalms. There's no other book in the Bible that has quite the emotion that the Psalms do. That's why we're going to spend this month looking at the heartbeat that we see in these psalms. And as mentioned in the video, we're going to look at psalms that speak to a passion for God's word, a passion for generosity, a passion for living authentically, a passion for, for reaching the nations, a passion for reaching the next generation. We see these passions throughout the psalms, all throughout all 150 chapters of psalms. In this series, we're also going to have an opportunity to hear from several of our different pastors. Four of our pastors will be preaching, um, whether it's, it's Kyle or Brandon or Joel or myself. Uh, I'm Pastor Ben, for those who don't know me. I'm a youth pastor here. I think it's fitting that we're going to hear from different pastors because if you look at the book of Psalms, there's a bunch of different authors. In fact, in the book of Psalms, we see uh, I've got some stats up there. There's 73 of the Psalms are attributed to David. 50 of them are anonymous, but many people believe that a lot of those were David as well. 12 are, are by a man named Asaph. Uh, we've got 10 by the descendants of Korah, 2 by Solomon, 1 by Etha, Ethan, 1 by Heman. Um, and I don't know who those last two guys are, I'll be honest. But I know the last one, Moses, writes one as well. The Psalms are literally songs written to music. It's a songbook. They're poetic in nature, which means that because their genre is poetry, we need to come to them a little differently than we would come to some other sections of scripture with other different genres, like narrative genre that we might see in a book like Joshua, or an epistle that we might see in a book like Romans, or a prophecy book that we might see in a book like Isaiah. Unlike much of the, of the Bible, the Psalms are written chapter by chapter, which means that they can stand alone. If you look at a chapter in Romans, you can get a lot of truth out of just looking at one chapter, but by reading the whole context, the whole book, you get even more truth. You understand where he's going because Paul did not sit down and write one chapter at a time. He wrote an epistle, a letter to the Roman people. Whereas the Psalms, we see that each chapter was written independently. So you can look at one independent Psalm. Some Psalms, however, it's helpful for us to find some context. They'll, they'll give a, a little heading at the beginning where it will mention uh, why the psalm was written, who wrote it, uh, when it was written. For instance, probably the most famous of these is Psalm 51. Psalm 51 was written after the prophet Nathan came and confronted David on his sin with Bathsheba. 
It's David writing a song of repentance. And it's helpful for us to understand that to really gain what, what we can the most out of that psalm. The psalms are also, they're, they're not laid out in a clear order. It's not a chronologically, this is how they were written, so this is how we're, we're putting them in order. Uh, in fact, Psalm 51, as mentioned, was written when David was king. Psalm 52, we see, was written uh, when David was fleeing from Saul, when Saul was king. And if you know your, your Israel history, you know Saul was king before David. So that was many years before uh, the Psalm 51 being written. Today we're going to look at the heartbeat of the psalmist that shows a passion for God's word a passion for God's word. And there are many psalms that show a passion for God's word. The one that does it the most by far is Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm spanning 176 verses. In fact, it's the longest chapter in the Bible. And it's unique in that it's an acrostic. For for eight lines in a row, every single line starts with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Then the next eight start with the next letter. The next eight start with the next letter and so on and so forth. Now, I think I could probably write a a poem or a song where eight lines in a row start with the letter A, and then eight lines start with letter B, and so on and so forth. But it probably would not really make a whole lot of sense. Like, you know, I'd probably mention America, uh, and then aristocrats, because that's that's a fun word to say, uh, and then maybe Alcatraz, uh, but none of those really connect to each other, which is the amazing thing about Psalm 119. All of this acrostic, All of these 176 verses have one common theme. It's centered around God's word. God's word is mentioned 171 times in the 176 verses. And it's mentioned as different things. You see, it's mentioned as the word 28 times, as the law 25 times, as commandments and as testimony both 23 times, as statutes 22 times, precepts 21 times, rules 17 times, and promise 12 times. And that should all equal up to 171. You can check my math if you want to. As I was choosing a psalm, I definitely thought about this psalm. This would be a good one to teach on. Uh, But I realized that you guys probably want me to be done at a reasonable time so everyone can go home and get their nap after staying up late last night. So I decided to pick a psalm that was a little bit shorter, about 170 verses shorter. And we're going to be looking today at Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm 1, it's one of the psalms where we don't know who the author was. People speculate, they think that Solomon might have been the one who wrote Psalm 1, but we're really not sure. And because we don't know who the author is, it's kind of hard to know the motivation behind it. But many people, including early church fathers, believe that Psalm 1 was written as an introduction of sorts to the psalms. That that when putting together these psalms, they decided we need to introduce this whole book. And so they wrote Psalm chapter 1. A call to worship, as it were, to a book of worship. Preparing hearts by giving them a focus on a love for God and his word, which is a common theme we see throughout the book of Psalms. Being only six verses filled with such great truth, this is an excellent chapter to memorize. And if you've never memorized it, I would encourage you to maybe make that a challenge for yourself, to memorize this psalm. In fact, when I was in high school, I worked at a Christian camp, uh, and every, every year... Uh, the, the staff members had to memorize a, a chunk of scripture or multiple. And I think this year it was multiple because we did memorize Psalm 1. And to this day, I still remember Psalm chapter 1 from that. Uh, but I learned it in, in a different translation. And we're going to be reading it from the ESV. So I don't want to mess anyone up. And I'm a type A personality. So I want to make sure I get this all right. So 
Let's read Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for preserving it for us. We thank you, God, uh, for those that have come before us who had a deep love for your word and showed us the example of what it means to truly have a passion for your word. God, I pray that you will help us today as we look at this to come humbly, that your spirit will reveal to us where we truly stand so that we can humbly see the changes we need to make to better value your word and be a man called blessed. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This psalm starts off by saying, blessed is the man. So it's important for us before we dive into anything else to understand what does that mean? Blessed means a sense of happy. The the man described in this psalm is one who's found happiness. And it's not a fleeting happiness. No, it's a sturdy happiness. They found true fulfillment, if you will. And that's what people want, right? People long fulfillment. We were made with a purpose, and for thousands of years, people have searched for fulfillment for that purpose. People have tried to find things to fulfill themselves, to to fill that, that void that they feel in their lives. They've tried to fill that fulfillment through money, fame, sex, drugs, careers, relationships. The list goes on and on and on. In fact, every year at this time, a lot of people make New Year's resolutions, And these New Year's resolutions, they're usually based on something they lacked last year. In fact, uh, from last year's New Year's resolutions, here are the top eight New Year's resolutions from 2022, according to a Statista survey. I don't have them from this year because they haven't updated yet. I don't know what's wrong with them. But the first one is to exercise more, to eat healthier, to lose weight, to save more money, to spend more time with family and friends, to spend less time on social media to reduce stress on the job, to reduce spending on living expenses. Each of these are changes they want to make from last year because it's areas that they feel they lacked in. They still don't feel fulfilled and something needs to change. What do I need to change to find a more fulfilling life? The search for fulfillment continues. But Psalm 1 tells us, it starts off by telling us what a fulfilled purpose-led, happy man looks like. This man is righteous, as we see revealed later in the chapter in verse 6. And he is compared to one who is wicked. You see two different paths, the path of the wicked and the path of the righteous. So this morning, we're going to dive into the comparisons given to us by the author of this psalm. And the first is that that we see in, in verse 1 is the delight of the wicked is worldliness. The delight of the wicked is worldliness. They are eroded by sin. They are eroded by sin. In verse 1, we see an an outline of the erosion of sin. Now, I don't think many people would define themselves as wicked, 
or at least would be quick to do that. But many who are clearly wicked would be surprised to see how they ended up there. Many people who who have areas in their lives where they've clearly fallen away from where they wanted to be and would be categorized as wicked and can't deny that would probably be surprised to see how they ended up in that spot. It's one compromise here, followed by one there, and eventually they're shocked to see how far they've fallen. We know this is true because we have areas in our lives where we've seen that this is true. And we see how this erosion happens in Psalm 1, where he says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So let's break those three things down. First, he does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. In a search for fulfillment, men often turn to the wicked. They seek their counsel. They're trying to find fulfillment, and they're asking, how can I be fulfilled in this life? What the wicked tell them, they listen to. They're walking, though, which means that, that they haven't settled into that lifestyle. It's, it's almost as if, uh, as, as if the wickedness is the planet, and they're still in orbit, kind of circling that planet. They, they haven't landed yet, but, but they're listening to it. They're getting closer and closer and being pulled into it. The second thing is they stand in the way of sinners. Now they've eroded to the point where they no longer just listen to their counsel. They're standing in their way. And it doesn't mean they're standing in their way like they're standing in the way blocking the wicked, blocking the sinners. No, they're standing in their way, meaning they're standing in their path of life. This is how they live. And this person that's being described here, the blessed man does not even stand in their way. But that's kind of the second step of the erosion. They stand in their way. Whereas before they were on the outside listening in, now they're part of the crowd. Now they've landed on that planet, so to speak. And then the third thing is they do not sit in the seat of scoffers. The erosion has met its conclusion. He's no longer on the outside crowd listening in. He's no longer simply one who's living in sin, a sinner. He is one who is sitting, firmly seated in the seat of mockers. This visual makes me think uh, of when you would travel to a town back in biblical days. You would have a city gate, and the leaders of the town would often sit at the city gate, and people would come around them and listen. So whoever's associated with that city, they're sitting in that gate. This man has now gone from walking in the way of sinners to standing in the way of sinners, to sitting in the seat of scoffers. And notice the change from wicked to sinners to scoffers. The wicked, the sinners, they're people that probably in ignorance are, are living, seeking, their, seeking pleasure, seeking fulfillment. But it's in ignorance, not even realizing what they're doing. As Jesus said when he hung on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Many of those men who were killing Jesus did not know what they were doing. But when you're sitting in the seat of scoffers, of mockers, your translation might say, these have now gone from, I am simply ignorantly trying to get through life and just giving in to pleasures, which we should not be doing, that are contrary to God. Now it's, I am living deliberately contrary to God. I am mocking God. And you see this happen in people's lives. People that know the truth, that know the gospel, that start to live and start to say, you know what? No, I should be able to do this. I should be able to do that. I want to do this. I want to do that. 
And then as time goes on, they change their stance. And now they're saying, you know what? I should be able to do this. And God, I hate you for not letting me do this. And they start to turn to mock God. They outwardly mock God himself. And this path, this path of worldliness, it has subtle beginnings. When we look at those who are of this world, we often look at those who are sitting in that seat of scoffers, those who mock God, or even those who are are clearly in the way of sinners. But what we fail to realize is this is an easy trap to fall into. It's an easy trap to fall into. We think we're safe when we compare ourselves to the wicked. We say things like, well, I'm glad I'm not that guy. Or sure, I'm not perfect, but I could be a lot worse. But by making these excuses, we give ourselves a false sense of identity. We are identifying with the righteous when we read this passage while walking many times in the counsel of the wicked. Still in orbit, thinking that's okay because we haven't landed on that planet. This is not a safe place to be. The blessed man in this psalm is one who stays clear of even this region. He knows where it leads. He's seen where it leads. He's watched others fall, this slow, unknown fall. I just bought a belt yesterday, and I'm very happy about my belt. Um, I, it's not this one. But um, I, I have this, this black belt that I wear all the time that, that kind of stretches. I don't like belts that just have custom holes already in it. Uh, because if you're in between holes, you know, it's just really frustrating, right? Because then you got to poke a new hole. But then, again, I'm a type A personality. So it's not even now. There's one that, that isn't perfectly spaced. Uh, so this one is one that stretches and you can fit in anywhere. And I bought one years ago and I loved it and I've used it so often um, that now um, it stretches like all the way around me and to the back. So one and a half times. I didn't realize how much it was stretching until I bought a new belt. And my new belt only goes to here, just like this one. I was like, wow, was this belt really this way when I bought it? Over time, it stretched and stretched and stretched. And I didn't realize how much it stretched. And I'm afraid that's what happens with us sometimes when we start to, to get close to sin. We start to listen to mockers, to scoffers. But the wise man, he doesn't spend time comparing himself to the worst of sinners. He doesn't spend time even getting close to that orbit because his focus is elsewhere. The delight of the righteous is God's word. The delight of the righteous is God's word. Verse 2 says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He loves God's law. He loves God's law. The blessed man, he's not listening to the counsel of the world. Where others fill their ears with the messages of the world, he's filling his heart with the message of God's word, of God's law. Referring to that, he's referring to specifically the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, which would have been at that point what they knew of as the scriptures. You hear later mentioned scriptures and the prophets, um, and, and that is what we have as our Bible plus the New Testament. He loves God's law. It is his delight. Think about that. He delights in God's word. What do you find delight in? What brings you pleasure? What do you desire? What's your passion? If you ever go to Dick's Sporting Goods, you'll notice that they have um, name tags, and their name tag says their name, and then it says, my passion is, and it lists a sport. 
I was there and I was thinking, all right, well, what would, my, what would I list? My passion is, because there's different sports I enjoy. You know, I love baseball. I love playing ultimate frisbee. I love watching football. Like, which one would be, if I had to pick one, what would it be? Well, that got me thinking. If someone came up to us and asked us, what do you desire? You know, I'm going to give you a name tag. And it's going to say, my name, my name is, is Brandon. Or, or my name is Steve. Or my name is Betty. And my passion is. What would go there? I would love to say for me, definitely God's word. God's word would definitely go there. But the reality is a lot of times, you know, for, for me, it might be watching a TV show with my wife, playing games with my family, eating a nice juicy steak, playing sports, coaching sports, possibly what right now is on my mind, sleeping. Maybe for many of you, you're thinking about that too. These things aren't bad things, but if we had to pick one thing to be on that name batch, it should be God's word. It should be God's word. Now, preparing for this sermon, I found myself very convicted, if you haven't noticed already. I like to, I like to, to when I prepare for sermons, uh, I, I usually read through the text. I kind of create a rough outline. I call it a skeleton. Eventually, I put meat on the bones. Um, I guess that's kind of morbid, but whatever. Uh, and, and then I, I like to, to listen sometimes to sermons that other men that I respect preach on the passage I'm preaching on. Uh, just because, you know, I want to hear their perspective. And is there something that they're really focusing on? Is there something I missed? Is there something I can elaborate on? And as I'm listening to these sermons, I'm feeling awfully convicted. And one of them I listened to, I think it was, I want to say it was Francis Chan. He, he likened this whole council of the wicked orbit area, this region. He likened it to, to listening to um, media, listening to music, um, television, these sorts of things are, are when we're in that area. And I thought, that's really true. I mean, think about it. How easy is it for you to quote a, a famous line from a TV show or a movie? How easy for, it, for you is it for you to quote a song lyric? How easy is it for you, to, if you're into sports, to quote statistics of your favorite team or player? Now compare that to how easy it is for you to quote the word of God. Now, you can say, well, there's differences and there's reasons why. But the reality is, the reason is, we don't spend enough time in God's word. We don't spend enough time in God's word. The more we listen to those things, the more we let those messages preach to us. And this begins to slowly work its way into our lives, causing us to adopt the philosophies of the world around us to adopt the philosophies of those who hate God. For me, I, I like to listen to podcasts. And I have a bunch of different ones I listen to. I listen to I've got some pastors, I listen to their sermons. Uh, I've got some that are spiritually focused or like, you know, help me be a better parent, that kind of thing. Uh, I've got some rewatch podcasts of favorite TV shows uh, that, that I had growing up. I've got some that, that are history podcasts. I really enjoy learning about history. Uh, I've got some podcasts that are about sports and my favorite sports teams. Well, I found one that is uh, by host, co-hosted by one of my favorite athletes, and they talk about sports 
but they, they talk about big games from sports in the past, and they interview athletes who played in those games. And so I get sports and history. And I'm like, oh, this is great. This is really neat. I can see what's going on. I can hear the behind-the-scenes stuff. I enjoy that kind of thing. But they also use a lot of language that you would hear in a locker room. Now, I personally have never been one who struggled with cursing. It's somewhere where, where God's blessed me in that area. And I have to give a lot of credit, honestly, to probably one of my fifth or sixth grade um, Sunday school teachers. So if you teach kids, you can make a big influence on their lives. But that's something I've never really had a problem with. But as I'm listening to this podcast, listening for the content about sports and just kind of like, oh, okay, well, you know, I'm going to chew the meat, spit out the bones kind of things. I'm listening to the ser- the, these podcasts, I, I almost said sermons, because that's what happens. It preaches to you. And I find myself reacting at different points. And my first thought are these words that I would never say, but they're popping in my mind. And that was a red flag for me. And I realized if if this is popping into my mind, if I'm not careful, I'm going to continue to erode to the point where this is popping out of my mouth. And I'm going to destroy my testimony. So listening to, to sermons on Psalm 1, I found myself convicted to listen more to, to preachers, more to spiritually focused things, more to things about God and his word, and less to other ones, even those that had no negative effect on me. Not because they're bad, but because I need more of God and his word. I need to be eating more of this. I need this to be my passion. But to love God's word, it means more than I just read it and listen to people talk about it. No, according to the psalmist here, The blessed man also meditates on God's law. He does more than just read it. He loves God's word, and that leads him to meditate on it. To meditate, it means to ponder. Now, when when I, I teach our students especially, I encourage them to really dig into the text. I like that visual because you're digging in. You're intentional about it when you're digging. You don't accidentally dig. You've got to be intentional. But there's other analogies you could use. I know probably many people here enjoy hunting. I've never hunted, so if I say anything that sounds completely ridiculous, please give me grace. But when you're hunting, I assume you're sitting there for a while and you're watching. You're probably not just sitting there sleeping because you're watching, you're searching, you're waiting for that prey to come by. That's how we need to be with God's word. Some of you love shopping and you go around. I went around with with my son Caesar yesterday looking for something. We went to probably seven different stores until we found out the, the final one I was going to. I was done after that one. But we were looking and looking and looking. And if you enjoy shopping, that can be an analogy that connects to you perhaps. Digging into God's word. Maybe you love working with your hands and you love fixing things. You try to find the problem. You really got to dig into it. You really got to figure it out. That's what meditating on God's word looks like. Intentionally coming to God's word to ponder, to dig deeper into it. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to go to uh, Nepal, and it was a great trip. And while I was there, I bought a really cool souvenir, not a dinosaur. This is called a singing bowl. A singing bowl is used for meditation, all right? And to make it sing, you have to be super relaxed and focused on what you're doing. And the longer you do it, the louder it gets. I don't know if y'all could hear that. Could you hear that in the back, Jordan? All right. 
although these meditation bowls are, are used for, for some who are, use it in, in worship that wouldn't please God, it reminds me when it comes to meditating on God's word, I need that interrupt, in, uh, in uninterrupted focus. And you notice during that time, I wasn't talking because I needed to focus and I'm terrible at doing two things at once. I need that uninterrupted focus on God's word to get the desired result in my life for his word to resound in me. Now, the interesting thing about this singing bowl is you can, you can make it sing without the long meditative process. You can just hit the side and hear a quick song. It isn't as long. It's not as impressive. But you know what? It sings. Sometimes that's how we come to God's word. We don't take time to meditate on it. We're rushed, looking for a quick fix to move on. We hear a sermon, get a good soundbite for, for the week, and move on. We read a passage of scripture, post something that sounds nice on social media, and move on. Instead of really digging into and meditating on God's word. I've noticed myself doing this in my life. For a while, I would, with my quiet time, uh, I, I would just read a passage of scripture and move on. That was it. You know, I'd read a passage of scripture, pray, and move on. And I realized that's, that's not giving me much. I'm not getting much from God's word. Why am I not getting much from God's word? Because I'm not putting much into getting from God's word. It's not God's word's fault. It's my fault. I'm not digging into it. So I changed how, how I do my quiet time. And, and it's not perfect. Um, and, and I certainly still uh, fail to, to get much from it because there are plenty of times where I'm just checking it off the list. But here's my quiet time routine. I start off by quoting uh, in prayer, Psalm 119, you know, really long chapter that talks about God's word. Psalm 119, just verse 18, not the whole chapter, uh, where it says, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I think that's a great heart posture to have when you're coming to God's word. I read that in a book somewhere uh, and instantly wrote it down uh, and put it a little bookmark in my Bible so I would remember to pray that every single time. Then I read a passage of scripture. Then I ask myself uh, three questions about that passage, which our, our teenagers here have heard me say these questions many times, uh, which is hopefully very helpful because that's what helped me when I was a teenager and heard questions asked, and which helped me kind of understand what I need to be asking when I come to God's word. I ask the question, what does it say? Where I'm rewriting what it says, summarizing what it says. It forces me to really think through what it says. What does it teach me about God? Because God's word is about God. It's not about us. And I don't look for one answer. I try to challenge myself and I challenge the teenagers as well. And we're looking at this question to ask yourself after you write one answer, what else does it teach me about God? What else does it teach me about God? What more can I learn about God from this passage? And then the last question is, what am I going to do about it? How am I going to apply what I read to my life? And then I, I read a chorus part uh, from, from a commentary series that I found. This is called the Christ-Centered Exposition. And I would recommend this if anybody really wants to dive deeper and meditate on God's word. Uh, these are the, the series editors are David Platt, Daniel Aiken, and Tony Merida. Uh, they have all sorts of them out now. Um, and they're, they're not written like the commentaries where it's got the original languages in it and everything. This is written more like a sermon. So it's much more readable. Uh, it, it's almost like a, a commentary and a devotional merged together. So I, I use these, these measures, these efforts here to try to force myself to get deeper into God's word. And I'm sharing that with you, not, not because I want you to think I'm great at it, because I'm really not. 
Like, I really don't do it as consistently as I should. I, I really still rush through it when I shouldn't. But to encourage you to say, what can I do to meditate more on God's word? The blessed man, he delights in God's word so much that he meditates on it. And as a result, we see an analogy of the righteous in this chapter. He's called a prosperous tree. Verse 3 says, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Why is he a prosperous tree? He's a prosperous tree because he's planted by God's word. This blessed man, he's referred to a tree that is nourished by God's word. Whereas the wicked seek the counsel of the worldly, the righteous seek the counsel of God's word. And the thing I love about this imagery is this this tree isn't doing anything crazy to get this nourishment. It's not like he's a tree that has to grow taller than all the other trees so he can get the most sunlight. No, it doesn't say he's a tree that sits in the front pew uh, of, of the church in order to be closer to God and his word. No, and thank goodness for most of you. But he is just a tree that's doing what a tree's supposed to do. Trees get nourished by water, right? They get nourished by the stream. That's how they were designed. We were designed to be nourished by God's word. What does that look like to plant yourself by God's word? Well, Matthew 7, Jesus uses an analogy of two builders to teach us that it's more than just hearing God's word. It's applying it to our lives. It's doing what God's word says. So as you dig into God's word or whatever analogy you want to use for that, seek to find how to do what God's word teaches you to do. The other thing I love about this imagery is he isn't doing anything crazy as a result. It says it's yielding its fruit in season and having leaves that don't wither. It's not a peach tree that's growing peach cobbler. It's not an orange tree growing oranges in the midst of a winter in Maine. It's not an apple tree growing iPhones. Took a second. I just wanted to make sure you guys got that joke. It's doing what it was made to do. Trees are made to grow fruit and to have healthy leaves. And why is it doing what it's made to do? Simply because it's getting nourished from where it's made to get nourishment from. We don't have to be super Christians. We don't have to be super Christians to have a fulfilled life. We don't have to be, you know, traveling the world and and telling everybody about Jesus in order to get that fulfilled life. Yes, we need to be telling people about Jesus, but we don't have to be these super missionaries or whoever we put on our Christian pedestals. We just have to be saying, God, what does your word teach? Let me get my, my nourishment from your word and let me produce fruit by doing what it says. Whether that is going to the ends of the earth or going to the end of your street with the gospel. We're doing what God made us to do. And when we do, we see that we benefit. This righteous man, he benefits from God's word. He benefits from God's word. He's planted by God's word. He's benefiting from God's word. What does that look like in everyday life? How do we benefit from God's word? Well, David gives some example in Psalms 19, verses 7 through 8, of the benefit that God's word brings. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Now we could spend a whole sermon just preaching on that, but I won't. 
I just want to point out four truths that we see from that of things that we get. God's word brings refreshment in an imperfect world. God's perfect law revives our soul when we face the struggles of imperfection day to day in the world that we live in. God's word brings wisdom in the midst of uncertainty. We're all simple and we need, we need wisdom in our lives. And God's word gives us wisdom in our times of uncertainty. God's word gives us joy in a wicked world. When we see so much wrong around us, God's word is right and unchanging like that song we sang earlier today about how he is the same God. His word is the same word. And in an unchanging world, that can bring us joy when it's hard for us to find joy. And God's word brings us knowledge in the midst of temptation. God's word gives us a standard of purity as we seek to learn what is pure and right amidst constant temptation in this world. Notice the benefits that we see in, this, in these verses here are not what some might hope for. Prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel, they love Psalm 1. Because you know what? He is a tree planted by streams of water. Everything he does prospers. You want to be prosperous. You want to have health and wealth. That's how they preach it. They're looking at a worldly prosperity. This is not a worldly prosperity. The word of God benefits us in lasting, eternal, spiritual ways. It helps us to live the way that he designed us to live, to find that fulfillment that we've been seeking. And the imagery of producing fruit helps us see that this benefit is not solely for us. Who benefits from the fruit? Is it the tree? No. We benefit from that. Woodland creatures benefit from that. Eating the fruit and getting good nourishment from that. And it also, the, it's a way to plant seeds. The, the seed inside the fruit is planted then and has an opportunity to grow more trees. As we live a blessed life, we're not only benefiting ourselves we're finding our ch- and finding our true purpose in life, we're also benefiting others. We cannot read and apply God's word without showing the love of God to others. There's no way you can get through this book and isolate yourself from loving others. It will lead us to love others. It will lead us to show others the light of Christ. And by doing this, our benefit lasts longer and further, spreading the nourishing truths of God to others, which is a passion that we're going to be looking at later on in this series. The analogy of the wicked, on the other hand, is they're called pointless chaff. It says in verse 4, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. They have no benefit. They have no benefit. It's a sad reality, but living the way of the world ultimately benefits nobody. Like chaff. Chaff is the part of the wheat that when harvested, it's separated from the wheat. I have a picture up here uh, of these, these guys with winnowing forks. And what they'll do is they'll put all the wheat together and they'll take that fork and they'll throw it up in the air, throw up that grain in the air. The chaff that has no weight will blow away and the good wheat that has weight to it will fall down. The chaff benefits no one. And this is what the wicked are called. It's a sad reality, but the wicked miss out on the purpose of life. The things the wicked chase after in this world will leave them empty and dry. All they seek to find fulfillment in one day ends. Beauty fades. Popularity dissolves. Athletic ability ceases. Bank accounts run dry. Careers crumble. 
the most successful in this life will one day learn that everything they put their hope into has an expiration date. Even those who spend their lives feeding the hungry. If you spend your life feeding the hungry, yet never feed their souls, that work benefits no one in the end. They need that food physically, but they need spiritual food to understand the eternal benefits, to get tapped into the nourishing word of God. And this comes down to the fact that they have no foundation. They have no foundation. When we look at that kind of, that that three-step erosion process, you notice it starts off not with what he's doing outwardly. It's not talking about the sins that he's doing and mocking God. No, it talks about listening to the counsel of those who sin and mock God. Who we listen to, the counsel we listen to, is what we become. Who do we allow to influence us? Is it the counsel of the wicked or the word of God? You become the counsel you seek. If you seek wicked counsel, you become wicked. If you seek God's counsel found in God's word, you become godly. Those who are wicked are wasted, for they're not planted by nourishing streams of God's word. They're like the house built on the sand that Jesus talks about in Matthew 7. They have no foundation. And just like that house, in the end, the result of the wicked is they will perish. The result of the wicked is they will perish. Verses 5 and 6 say, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The wicked may stand in the way of sinners, but they will not stand in the judgment. When everyone stands before God, these wicked will not be able to stand, meaning they will not be found innocent. They will be found guilty, condemned. They'll also not be found in the congregation of the righteous. They'll be separated like the wheat from the chaff, which is an imagery we also see used by John the Baptist when he's talking about what Jesus is going to do. When he says in Matthew 3, 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This makes it incredibly clear that the end of the wicked is sure and sorrowful. They will perish. The result of the righteous, on the other hand, so much better. They're known by God. They're known by God. Verse 6 said, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The good news for the righteous is, is just that they're known by God. And there's no better identity to have than one who is known by God. There's no way we can be more fulfilled than to be known by God. The God of the universe knows the righteous. The amazing thing about this too is it's not that, that they're found and they're determined righteous because of the amazing things that they've done. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can earn but we receive from God the amazing gift of grace that allows us to be known by God. And with this post-resurrection perspective, this truth is even more amazing because we've done nothing to stand in his judgment. 
but he has done the saving work to cover our sins with his death. We are found righteous because we are clothed by him. The gift we received is his grace. Because of his sacrifice, we can be known by God. We as believers are to be planted by God's word so we can learn of the one who is truly righteous. And our goal should be to be this Psalm 1 man. But the reality is none of us can perfectly be the Psalm 1 man. None of us can perfectly be the Psalm 1 man. Every single one of us struggles and falls into various levels of the erosion of sin. Every single one of us has had seasons of our lives where we've uprooted ourselves from the word of God and receiving the the nourishment from the streams of his word. Every one of us by ourselves would fail to stand before him in judgment, being more categorized as useless chaff. Jesus is the true picture of this Psalm 1 man. He is the one who walked the earth yet didn't ever walk in the counsel of the wicked, let alone stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. His delight was in the law of the Lord, and on that law he meditated day and night. He is the tree planted by streams of water, always yielding fruit in season with strong, healthy leaves. He alone could stand in judgment, yet he chose to take our punishment upon himself so that we could know peace and we could be known by God. And before he died, he gave us a picture of his death, being the nourishment we need, a picture that we call communion. And we're going to take communion as a body of believers in just a moment. And if you're with us here today, and you don't go to Keystone, but you would call yourself a believer, a follower of Christ, You are a member of the body of Christ, and we encourage you to take communion with us. If you're here today and and you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, we're so happy you're here. We would just ask you to respectfully abstain from taking communion with us at the moment. You're welcome to stay here. We would just ask if you would refrain from taking the elements here. You know, just as sometimes we come to God's word hastily and with that quick mentality, without a proper focus, Sometimes we come to communion the same way. Paul called out the Corinthians for this very thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where he wrote in verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord, talking about communion, in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So before we partake, I'm going to ask you to, to take a moment to ready your hearts before God. Bring to him any unconfessed sins. Ask him to remove the distractions from your mind and come with a meditative heart, ready to partake. Spend a few moments in prayer. 